All right, so today we continue on with our study of the doctrine of sin. And for the past few weeks, Ron and Rick have been covering the topic entitled The Christian's Opposition. And today we'll continue with the last segment of the Christian opposition theme. And if you aren't familiar with the threefold opposition for the Christian, uh, we can start off by looking in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And I put it up here in the PowerPoint. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins uh, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here we see Paul speak to believers in Ephesus about their previous state before Christ. Um, but if you look carefully, you would see three main factors that held uh, and continues to hold mankind in a sinful state of rebellion against God. And these three things you'll see in there, verse 2. Look at verse 2, it says, in which you once walked following the course of this world. You see world, right? Uh, again in verse 2, the prince of the power of the air, right, which is the devil. And then verse 3, among whom we all once, uh, all once lived in the passions of our flesh, which number 3 would be the flesh. So again, those are the three points of opposition uh, in a Christian's life. Uh, the, the flesh, the devil, and the world. Uh, we've already discussed the world. We've already done with the devil. And so today we're going to talk about the flesh. And I'll do that in three points. Number one, point number one you'll see in the uh, worksheet is why the flesh must be mortified. And I'll explain what that means, and we'll get into that. Point number two is what mortification is not. Uh, so we'll get into that. And then point number three is what mortification is. Okay, so why the flesh must be mortified, what mortification is not, and what mortification is. So point number one, why the flesh must be mortified. Uh, first of all, the term mortified, does anyone know what mortify means? Put to death, right, to kill. And this is a term you'll hear a lot in Christian circles when we talk about you know, killing sin, killing the flesh, mortifying the flesh. That term mortifies is usually um, talked about in Christian circles. And we see in scripture that every Christian is called to mortify sin within them. And we get this from Romans 8.13. Can someone read that passage? So now when you look carefully at this passage, you'll find some key points, okay? Number one, to whom is this passage directed to, right? Notice this, it says, if you, right? If you, meaning you believers, what's the condition for if you, okay? So the condition is uh, if you attempt to do this, if you do this, these results follow. And then he goes on into the results. Um, he also mentions the means in accomplishing the task, right? So he says, if you do this, by what means, right? M by the means of what? Spirit. He talks about a duty, right? He's giving us a command, a duty to do something. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, okay? And then there's a promise, 
right? What's the promise if you do these things? You will live, right? So I think it's important to note that most commentators would agree that this duty of the Christian in killing sin is not meritorious. It's not something that we do to earn credit with God, right? We're not, this is not the way to heaven, so to speak, right? That's not what that's telling us. In other words, we don't kill sin because it buys our way to heaven. So when we, when we see Paul giving us this promise that if by the spirit you put to, de- put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, he's giving us a description, okay? He's describing something that those who live, right? Those who will live and see eternal life, which are all genuine Christians who are sealed for eternal life, will in fact put to death the deeds of the body. So what does that mean practically? This means that if you are a Christian, this is both your duty and a means in which God works out sanctification in your life. So it's a command, you ought to do it, but it's also something that you will do if you're a believer um, as a means to uh, you know, achieving that sanctification in your life. God uh, progressively growing you um, until we get to heaven. Um, and that, that's what it means by life, moving in that direction as opposed to death, which is something that sin brings uh, in your life. Another commentator says that when Paul says, you will live, he's speaking of eternal life, of course, which isn't only heaven. And we know this, right? When we receive eternal life now in the present, we're not technically there yet in heaven. Uh, we receive eternal life but it also, it's also a quality of living. It's also something that we receive, that we receive benefits at this very moment. And so all the benefits of eternal life, we enjoy even now as the people of God, which is the joy, right, the comfort and vigor of our life in Christ, even while we're, while we're still in this world. And some of you can testify to that. You know that when you kill sin, when you put away the, the old man and you put on Christ, there's, there's joy in your life. There's... Uh, a fountain of life living within you. you. You really do experience eternal life in the present. Of course, not in its fullness, right? We still battle with sin. There's so many other things going on. But this is why Paul challenges the Colossians, right? When we look in Colossians 3, 5, what is it? 3, 5 uh, through 10, Paul challenges the Colossians um, in such a way that displays what we're talking about. Let's, let's read that. Can someone read? Five through ten. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene thoughts from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Thank you. Yeah, so you see, in, notice in verse 9, when it says, put off the old self, and then in verse 10 it says, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. This is a clear command from God to take action against the old self. It's telling you to do something with the old self, um, which doesn't mean, when you hear the term old, your old self, a lot of times in Christian circles, you think that means, oh, my past life. That doesn't necessarily mean your past life or a past version of you. 
It actually means a very real present version of you that must be cut off. All right, so a lot of times uh, Christians often confuse that term, old self, meaning your old lifestyle. You may hear Christians share amazing testimonies about how they used or, or how they used to do certain things and now they don't do that anymore. That's very common in, in Christian circles. And uh, as real and true as that may be in many cases, the reality is that the old self might be nearer than we think. Okay? Um, in fact, the nature of indwelling sin is that it must be mortified daily, and we must never assume that we have arrived in a state of invincibility, thinking we have conquered such a sin and can never be tempted with it again. There's this idea that, you know, oh, that was my old life. Well, yeah, that's great, praise God, that he's changed you. But be careful not to be tempted again or to think that you can never be tempted with that again. It says in Philippians 3, 12, I'll read it. It says, now that I have, uh, I'm sorry, it says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is an example of Paul saying, look, I haven't arrived. This is still something I deal with. Uh, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So you must always be on this duty of killing sin, mortifying sin, as long as you live. Okay, do not take a day off from this work. There's no vacation from killing sin, unfortunately. And that sort of... Uh, that creates that weariness sometimes, that, that oh, I can't wait till you come back, Lord, and finish this. That feeling, that mourning deep inside that wishes for Christ to come and restore us in the ultimate sense. Um, that's what creates that, the fact that there is no rest when it comes to killing sin. There's no day off. John Owen, the Puritan writer, he says, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. And notice there is no, like, be killing sin 80% and then rest a little bit and then come back. Uh, no, be killing sin or it will be killing you always. And we, and we know both from scripture and experience that this is true. When sin leaves us alone, then we can leave it alone. But sin is always active and it does not leave us alone. Never. Until, we put, until this body goes away and God restores it um, in the day of glory. So sin is always active, even when it seems to be the most quiet. So those days when we think, man, we're killing it for the Lord, we're doing great for the Lord. Um, no, it's, it's just, it's quiet, and it's coming, it's coming around to get you. <laughs> um, look with me at Hebrews 12.1. Can someone read that passage? Yeah, so notice how the author describes sin as that which clings to closely. Uh, sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting. It's, it's alive, and it's always, it's always out to get us. This will always be the case while we live in this world. Sin will not rest, not even for a day. And this is, uh, I'm sorry, and this is there at times in which there are might. I'm sorry, they might have been a day in your life that you have felt completely devoted to God, right? There are some days where you feel uh, like you're doing well. 
And the, in the end of the day, you fall into sin. Has that ever happened to you where you feel like your day is going strong with the Lord and then something happens towards the end of the day and you're like, man, what happened? I was in prayer. I was, I was reading. I was really uh, going hard for the Lord. And temptation comes and knocks you down. And, and, and you wonder how you got to that point. That's, that's a, an example how sin is always, um, always trying to get you down. We must not neglect this duty of killing sin. In uh, 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul affirms that the inward man is renewed day by day while the outward man perishes. Now, I'm going to read that and I'll show you why this is important. Uh, it says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, those who neglect to mortify sin... What they're doing is they allow the inner men to perish, right? When you do not mortify the deeds of the flesh, grace in your heart withers while sin and lust flourishes and grows within you. Your heart becomes worse and worse. When you let sin gain a considerable amount of victory in you, it breaks the bones of, of your soul. And, and we're going to see certain passages that speak using that kind of language, um, Here's an example. Psalm 31, 9, 10. This is a, this is this, the psalmist here is describing the distress within him when he allows sin to take over in his life. It says, Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, because of my sin, and my bones waste away. How many of you guys have felt that way when you have allowed sin to, to run in your life? I know I have. That's like a perfect description. When I read it, I'm like, wow, no poet out there can write it so accurately. This is how it feels when you sin and you... you you don't repent. You, you stay in that sin and you, you feel this sort of distance from God. Um, it's almost like the life has been sucked out of you. Um, he says, for my life is spent with sorrow. There's great grief within you. My, my strength fails because of my iniquity. My bones waste away. Notice the way the psalmist describes the sorrowful effect of sin in the believer's life. He says, for my life is spent with sorrow. My strength fails. My bones waste away. Uh, I can honestly testify to those horrible moments when I have fallen in sin and temptation. Um, if, you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you have no idea what that means. You have no idea what this says. Just, this is something that a Christian, a person who's been born again, um, feels when he falls and when he sins against the Lord. This is the sorrow and brokenness, brokenness of a believer who has sinned against God. Such an experience is felt only by those who have been born again, who struggle with the reality of this fight against indwelling sin. Here's another psalm. Psalm 51, 8 through 9. It says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. You have this desire to reconcile with God again, uh, to come back. To, uh, he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. There's this loss of joy and detachment from that communion with God. Again, John Owen, I want to read something. By the way, he has a book 
uh, called, uh, there's an abridged version, because he has many books on this topic, um, The Mortification of Sin. And the abridged version is, is very good. It's a modern version. Um, I think it's published by Banner of Truth. Um, it's a small book, but it's, it's worth buying because it goes through all these, um, these things that the scripture talks about when it talks about indwelling sin and how to fight um, against um, sin and mortify the flesh. But here's a quote from John Owen. He says, Our spiritual growth is our daily duty. It is a duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. He's quoting Second uh, Corinthians 7.1. Okay, it's a duty to be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. To be growing in grace every day, like we're commanded in 1 Peter uh, 2, 2 and 2 Peter 3.18. So that our inner nature should be renewed day by day. This cannot be accomplished without daily mortifying of sin. Sin sets its strength against every act of holiness and every degree of spiritual growth. We will not be making progress in holiness without walking over the bellies of our lust. He who does not kill sin along the way is making no progress in his journey. And um, have you ever had a friend that, or a family member that you know is a Christian, but it seems like they are, they haven't grown much. So let's say you knew them from back then. You go away and then you come back and visit them and they're the same. And sometimes, you know, when you're asked, hey, how's so-and-so? You say, oh, you know, they're the same spiritually the reality is that they're not the same spiritually because you're never the same spiritually. You're either moving forward in growth with God or you're moving backward. Now, this, this, is, not, this is not getting into eternal security. We know you're secure in Christ. But you're, you're either moving and growing or sin is taking over your life and you're moving backward. And so this is something that we have to keep in mind, that sin is always active in you. And if you're not mortifying the flesh, if you're not killing sin on a daily basis, um, sin is, is conquering your life. Point number two in the worksheet. What mortification is not? Okay, so suppose you, as a genuine believer, find yourself hindered by a powerful indwelling sin issue. Let's say you have a sin issue and it's, it's, been, it's been really ruining your spiritual walk. It makes you weak and sorrowful like what we read in the Psalms. It weakens your soul and communion with God and with others. It takes you away from peace and troubles your conscience. What should you do? How can you gain enough victory over it in order to at least maintain strength and peace and communion with God? Well, first, if you want to deal with the sin issue, you have to know what mortification is not. Okay, There are certain things that we assume is killing sin, and it's, it's actually not killing sin. You're prescribing things that the Bible never told you is effectual when it comes to killing sin. Number one, what mortification is not. Number one, mortification of sin is not to utterly root it out and destroy it completely. You say, what? What do you mean? We... Okay. <laughs> Here's what I mean. <laughs> hmm. There may be times when we see wonderful success and great triumph over sin, but utterly killing it, we cannot expect that in this life. Philippians 3.12 speaks on that. If we want to have victory over sin, we can't do it with unrealistic expectations. 
It's easy to get discouraged when we think that we have utterly destroyed and have done away with a certain sin. And this goes back to what I was saying before when people say, you know, oh, that's my old life. And, and it might be. There are patterns in your life that you can look back and say, man, I used to do all that, and you don't do it, and that's fine. But when it comes to specific sin, to assume that you have utterly removed it from you completely, it's never going to come back again, is an unrealistic expectation. Not until the resurrection. Okay? What this means for us is that we must wage war against it until we're in the grave. What makes us complete, in, what makes us complete is Christ. Right? His perfection his righteousness, and that's what we're holding on to and depending on as we make our way home. And of course, until then, we fight against the sin. We don't live in the sin. But to assume that you've utterly removed it from you is, is, is an unrealistic expectation. Number two, what mortification is not. Mortification is not just changing some outward aspect of sin. This is an important concept that you have to understand. It's true that sin always manifests, manifests itself in some outside way. So, of course, you can look, and if you know the person, you're, you're great friends with them, you can tell certain things that they do, certain patterns, certain, way, certain ways of speaking from the outside and say, oh, they might be struggling. And, and that's okay to judge in that way, but it's, it's not always accurate. It's true that sin always manifests itself in some way on the outside, but this, this does not mean that the way to fix these sin issues is by dealing with the outside, right? So there are forms and ways that you can try to change someone's outer appearance or outer manifestations of these sins by dealing with just the outside issues. But that doesn't actually deal with the sin. In other words, behavior modification is not uh, mortification of sin. A person, let's say a person's always late, they always do certain things that, are, that you say, man, this is not right, a Christian ought not to do this. By telling them to come on time is not dealing with certain sins. By telling them to start doing this and stop doing that, it doesn't actually deal with the sin. These are just outer things. Your cup can be spotless on the outside, yet still be filthy on the inside, in other words. So mortification is not just changing some outward aspect of sin. Number three, what mortification is not. Mortification is not just the improvement of, your, of our natural constitution, for, for better words. In other words, some people have an advantage in their natural temperament over others. So if they just improve their natural frame, they may seem like greatly mortified men. However, this isn't mortification. Our natural tempers are not a good test for true mortification. So, for example, those who are nicer than others, or even more passive than others, or maybe less opinionated than others, may seem to be more greatly mortified. They, wow, they're so peaceful, and they, uh, the reality is they just don't care. So you think that they're peaceful, but they just don't care. So you think, wow, they're mortified. They are humble servants of God. But that's not, don't be fooled, that's not mortification. All men and women must deal with their true selves in light of the law of God and put to death even the slyest, sneakiest sin like greed, lust, pride, envy, unbelief, things like that. So it's a, it's a war that we're all fighting. Number four, a sin is not mortified when it is only diverted. Okay? And I'll explain that. In fact, I'll... I'll uh, 
Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a quick uh, scripture reference. It's, it's not on the board or on your thing, on your uh, paper. But in Acts chapter 8, uh, verses 9 through 24, you don't have to go to it because it's a story. So I'll give you a summary. Uh, but it talks about a man named uh, Simon Magus who practiced magic. And he tried to spread his fame and would say that, uh, he would say to all that he's a great man because of his, his magic that he would do. But after hearing Philip preach, he converts and becomes a Christian. But later on, we see that he tries to buy power from the apostles after seeing them perform miracles. And Peter rebukes him. So in other words, we see in this story an example of a man who repents and turns from a life of vain glory as a sorcerer, leaving the magician life. And yet we see this same sin manifests itself somewhere else in his life. This is a good example of what often happens to us when we assume that sin is mortified, when in reality it has only been diverted. Okay? Many men have claimed victory over sin of watching pornography, let's say. And what they do is they'll grab their scissors and they'll cut the internet wire at home, breaking their computer. Yet days later, the sin of lust appears through another avenue. So although it may be temporarily helpful to get rid of your computer or get rid of any access to, to what would cause you to sin in this way, sin in the heart is still undealt with. I'll never forget a, here's another example, this is kind of switching modes, but I'll never forget a conversation that I had with a father. This was a, a, a friend, he's a father who, um, who has a son who's struggling with homosexuality. I was having a conversation with him, and his son is gay. And the father, out of frustration, and I felt him, you know, I felt so bad for him, but out of frustration, he said this. He said, I wish my son would just meet a woman and experience her. By the way, uh, <laughs> what, what he meant by experience her, experiencing her was hinting like on a physical level. He was saying, man, I, my son is gay. I wish he would just experience a woman on a physical level. Now, it was obvious at that point that at that point, his father uh, wasn't really concerned with sin, right? He just didn't want his son to be gay. And so he assumed that fornication with a woman would get him to be straight. It would push him into the, like, the realm of being straight. Uh, but again, what he was really doing was trading one sin for another, right? And, and this is not mortification. Again, this is another way of diverting sin from one end to, to the other. Uh, sinning one way in order to fix another sin. And that's not a way to fix any sin. Um, so sin is not mortified when it's only diverted, okay? And then the last one is um, occasional victories over sin are not mortification. So when you see in your life that you have occasional victories over sin... That's, that's, not, that's not mortification. And, and I'll explain what I mean. Let's look at Psalm 78, 32 to 37. Can someone read that? Flattered him with 
their mouths, they lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yeah, so looking at this verse <clears throat> and just reading the description of 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 the people there, uh, how in the beginning you'll see uh, they remembered that God was their rock. Um, uh, verse 34 says, when he killed them, they sought him, they repented and sought God earnestly. Um, so verse 34, where it says uh, they repented and sought God earnestly. Um, it, it, it's actually, verse 37, it says, but... Um, what does it say? Yeah, their heart was not steadfast toward him, and they were not faithful to his covenant. So, it, in the beginning, I don't, I don't doubt that they truly sought after God, that they truly repented and turned uh, to God. That, that it says here that they sought earnestly. But as you fast forward to verse 37, we see that they fell, and in the end were not faithful to God's covenant. So, their sin was still unmortified even after all this. Likewise, at times when we think we've gained full victory over sin, and the sin seems to be utterly mortified, the reality is that it has not received a fatal wound and has only been temporarily suppressed. And so this, this is just repeating what I mentioned before, um, that ultimately, uh, in our attempt at killing sin, it doesn't fully remove that from you on a permanent level. Um, sin will find every opportunity to break forth and to disrupt that peace that you have with God. Okay, let's, uh, let's go on to point number three in the, in the worksheet. What is mortification? Or what mortification is? Number one, mortification is a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that, that's where true killing sin is going to come from. It's, it's going to come from the Holy Spirit. It's important to note that that outside endeavors, things like bodily exercises, self-help methods, are, are mere legal duties without the least mention of Christ and his spirit are usually false teachings about mortification. They actually don't deal directly with sin. These ways and means were never appointed by God for this purpose. All right? So we can create all kinds of ways to say, well, I want to kill sin in this way. But all these, all these things um, were not appointed from the Bible. Um, Romans 8.13 tells us what the appointed mean, means is. And, and uh, Let's see here. Nope, I don't have it here. I'll just keep reading. It says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So you see where, where the means of killing sin comes from. It's by the Spirit. You kill, this, you kill the, or you put to death the deeds of the body. So mortification is done by the Spirit. And we, we owe it all to Jesus Christ because of the blessings that we have in Christ, which is ultimate defeat over sin in its final uh, consummation. And of course, we have eternal life through Christ. And all these things are given to us and applied to us by the Spirit. And so it's those things, it's, it was the Spirit that applies these means in us that helps us and allows us to kill sin. So the question in the end of the day would be, so how does the spirit mortify sin? How do we tap into this uh, power, so to speak? Uh, and, and the answer is by causing our, what, what the spirit does within us is, is that he causes us and he causes our heart to abound in grace 
and the fruits that are contrary to the works of the flesh. So the things that actually kill sin are the work of the Spirit bearing fruit within you. And the fruit of the Spirit is actually what goes against the fruits of the flesh. And so really the answer is bearing fruit in the Spirit is how you mortify sin and mortify the works of the flesh. Um, look at Galatians 5.17. Can someone read that? For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. There you go. So, by living by the spirit, which means submitting and following the spirit, the fruits of the spirit will indeed restrict the fruits of the flesh. Simple. He the Holy Spirit, causes us to grow, to thrive, to flourish, and abound in graces which are contrary and destructive, actually, to the works of the flesh. He also brings the cross of Christ into the heart of a sinner by faith and gives communion with Christ in his death uh, and fellowship in his sufferings. Now, being that sin is killed by the Spirit, it may seem like our only duty is to wait around for the Holy Spirit to kill sin almost as if we don't actually take part in the killing of sin. Yet we see in Scripture that the Holy Spirit works in us and with us, not against us or without us. So the Holy Spirit that indwells you, uh, let's say you're facing temptation, you know, and it's right before you, you don't just sit there and like wait around for the Holy Spirit to kill sin. Um, it works with you. It, um, it uses what you have in you. It uses your knowledge, your understanding. Um, it, it acts upon your will and your affections. So if you want to defeat sin and allow the Holy Spirit to uh, bear fruit and in the midst of temptation have that overcome the sin, you have to constantly feed your mind, renew your mind, feed, uh, your, uh, change your affections and allow the Word of God to adjust your affections and your heart and your mind, so that in the day of temptation, the Holy Spirit would use all that you have invested in you to fight against this sin. That, that's pretty simple, right? I know sometimes when people say, hey, live by the Spirit, you say, okay, is there an on switch that I can just turn it on and it'll, I'll start living by the Spirit? Uh, no. What it means is in preparation, in, it, the reason why you come to church every Sunday to worship, to learn, to renew your mind, is so that in the day of temptation... Uh, you'd be, the Holy Spirit would use these things uh, against um, whatever sin or temptation that's before you. And, and that's why a lot of times you'll hear people say, well, defeat, defeat these affections and lusts for, uh, when it comes to sin. Defeat those things with greater affections and love and desire for God. And so, you know, every time you read the word, you're feeding your soul, you're feeding your heart, you're fixing your conscience, and these things work um, against, you know, the, the day of temptation. So again, the Holy Spirit always acts upon our understanding, our will, our conscience, our affections. We act, yet he empowers us to act. Therefore, it's synergistic in nature. Synergistic means uh, it's, it's uh, an effort from both sides. It's not just, like our salvation is monogistic, which is God alone coming and rescuing us. Uh, when it comes to sanctification and fighting sin, and, and uh, growing in Christ, this is a work that's done by both us and the Holy Spirit together. 
Um, here's an example of that, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Can someone read that? Yeah, so you, you see a command to work out your salvation, then you see the reality that God actually does it with you or on you, for you. Um, he says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this verse shows how it is God who works in us to do these things, but we also partake in, in physical activity. We also, take, we also partake in the studying of his word and all these other practical means in which we... Um, we it can receive these uh, blessings from God. So it is only by the Spirit that we can obey things like uh, what it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, calling us to take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's only by the Spirit that we can do that. It's only by the Spirit that we can obey what it says in Colossians 3, to put off the old self and, uh, with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of his creator. And again, uh, that emphasizes uh, when it comes to being renewed uh, or, or putting on the new self, it, the instruction is uh, being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator, giving us a duty. We have to go seek after his word, uh, sit under the teachings of the apostles. And these things contribute to, um, to the mortification of sin. Uh, another point before we close out, we put to death, Right? This act of killing sin, what we're doing is we're putting to death something that's already dead. In other words, Christ already achieved a victory over sin. So what we're doing is we're living that out practically. Uh, we're putting to death what is already dead. One of the ways in which we are led by the Spirit in killing sin is faith in the gospel. There's a declaratory statement made by Paul in Galatians 5.24, which says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. So Paul is declaring a truth about the believers that is meant to, it's meant to remind him that if you belong to Christ, there is a reality that is already true about you and which you must live by. This is a reality. We look at this and say, that's, uh, that's a description about me. We believe it. It's talking about uh, who I am. Uh, we belong to Christ. The flesh has been crucified. I have to live according to that truth. Uh, in other words, you are saved and sin and death has already been defeated for you on the cross. Your old self was crucified on the cross. Therefore, you're, you're called to count yourself as dead. Whenever you, whenever you see sin in front of you, remind yourself, hey, I died a long time ago. I died with Christ on the cross. This includes your passions and your desires for sin, we are to live this reality. And it is the Holy Spirit that applies this truth to us in the present, even while we are still in the body of sin. We must believe this by faith and seek that we be empowered by the Holy Spirit to starve out those desires and replace them with the knowledge of our Creator, which is what we just read in uh, Colossians. To live any way else is to live a lie against the truth about ourselves and the benefits of who we are in Christ and what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Okay, so we, we don't want to live a lie. We have to live in reality of what Christ has declared us to be according to what we see in the scripture. 
And never underestimate the power of simple obedience. Sometimes we overthink things. And I'll never forget, there were, uh, in times of temptation, um, just simply thinking of the commandments of God to say, wait, God said it's wrong. Why can't that be enough for me? That's it. Walk away. Simple obedience is what we're called to do. Um, Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Can someone read that passage? Yeah, thank you. So you'll notice that in the new covenant, right, this new covenant that we are in Christ, the spirit of God is within his people and he will cause them to walk in his statutes and be careful to obey his rules. Now, us as reformed Christians, right, we're often afraid to hear the word obedience uh, because we fear of becoming legalistic, things like that. But the truth is that although we aren't saved by our obedience, our sin issue exists because of our obedience. So the reason why we sin is because of disobedience. And so when we flip it and we think, well, what what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to obey. Of course, we're forgiven and we're not counted by the law, right? We're counted in Christ and he fulfilled it perfectly. So we're saved. But the solution to not obeying is obeying and, and, and simply looking at the law and say, this is the will of God for me. This is what God commanded. Let's obey it. So obedience does play a role in the Christian life. And with that said, we should never underestimate the power of simple obedience because that too is the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, if it's not the Holy Spirit um, empowering us to look and obey and desire to obey God, you know, apart from that, we're not going to want to do it and we're not going to do it. Um, but simple obedience, you know, don't overestimate the power of looking at what God has commanded and saying, God doesn't agree with this. I'm not going to agree with it. And, and that's it. A simple glance at God's commandments should be enough to know not to break them and to sin against them because we serve a loving and a gracious God who came, sent his son, purchased us, is granting us eternal life, all the benefits that come from that. Um, and, and, and most importantly, we get to fellowship with God, that peace that comes with God, uh, with having that communion with God. And then, of course, what we long for in the future, which is, you know, that glorious moment when we have perfect fellowship with our, with our creator. Those are the things that make it all worth it to, to uh, live practically um, in light of what we've read in, in Scripture, in light of what we've been commanded to do. So although we are saved by grace alone, let us not look at God's law and think lightly of them. Let's obey them. And that's, that's pretty simple. Conclusion, uh, let us then put off the old man and put on the new who is being renewed through the knowledge after the image of our creator. Let us not depend on man's tactics, right? But rather the Holy Spirit who is, appo- who is the appointed means of mortifying the flesh. Our old self was crucified with Christ. We have to believe that. So let's let the gospel remind us of who we are in Christ and allow that to motivate us to live according to that reality um, and, and allow that to empower us to kill sin 
on a daily for the sake of God's glory. Amen? Amen. Uh, any questions or thoughts? Let me get Oh, okay. Appreciate it. Um, what really struck me was the first half that you were talking about and this concept that we, in a sense, overcome certain sins and not really taking heed to the fact of what the Scripture says, that the flesh is a, is a present yeah. uh, reality and that we have to struggle against that until the day of resurrection. Amen. Um, you know, and especially when I first became a Christian, this whole concept of like deliverance ministry, and, right. and you know, you hear testimonies and people, you know, God delivered me from alcohol, God delivered me from fornication, God delivered me from drugs, and right. we get this mindset that all of a sudden we can pray to God and God's gonna, and I'm not meaning to be irreverent, right. but God's gonna bring out the holy zap gun and zap <laughs> us, and we're not gonna have to deal with it anymore. Right. And that we're going to be above temptation. And that's really what the whole concept of deliverance ministry is, is that now I'm beyond temptation in these areas right yeah. here. Amen. And, yeah. uh, it's, it's a very, very false and very misleading concept. And, you know, it's good for us to be reminded that even, even if we're having current victory right now over a sin, that doesn't necessarily mean that at some future time we won't be tempted with it again. Right. Amen. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, and I think it, change, it ought to change our attitude, too, on how we look at others who are still struggling with sin. Of course, we should not give room for sin, uh, but we know that um, all of us are capable of sinning in, in many different ways. But amen, yeah, we, we are not fully delivered from it until the day that God uh, restores us. Yeah. Um, I have a question about, um, like, um, like, is it wrong to tell somebody to take precautions on something they did, like, it's just as, um, my wife, right, I have a problem with my in-laws, mm -hmm. so it's like, her father, they, you know, abused her when she right. did something, I just really don't like her people, so they forgave him, he didn't get a divorce, he doesn't live like how, you know, pedophiles in the living, right. you know what I mean? Yeah. So, you know, like, I try to be forgiven, you know, Try to like be cool with it, like just try to like not be cool with what he did, but she's try to be like how they are to him. Right. And there was one day my wife was breastfeeding, and he just walked in the room, and right. All of a sudden she goes back, you know, to that place. Right. And you know, I'm, you know, I've explained it numerous of times. She's like, I wish people would just forget about what I did. No, you can't because, like, you see, I, I told, I, explained, I used nine eleven as an example. Right. When none of that happened, after that, they take precautions. Right. So now you got to take precautions because that event just doesn't go away. Right. You know, and he took it as a sign of disrespect. <clears throat> I could have cursed you out, got all where I'm from with you. I could have, because I'm from the projects, I could have told you all types of things I wanted to tell, you know, tell you inside. But I tried to, like, explain it to him. And he's like, oh, you know what? You're cut off from me. And I'm like, I laugh because, like, you're nobody to me. You're nobody to cut me off. Like, you're, you know, like, so I just laugh at it. And, you know, they, everybody's trying yeah. to get me to understand it. He said, oh, you know, people come back from Vietnam and this is how they are, whatever happened. Like, I don't like psychiatry. You can't use psychiatry in social work for me. Yeah. Because I feel like they create excuses for a person to be a certain way. Right. And it's just like, Yeah, it, I, I'll just say this. Um, so my wife is just upset because yeah. I don't want to talk to her family. Anymore. Right. She thinks I hate them. I don't hate anybody. Actually, if I hated them, I would show them. Right. I just don't want them around me because they make my own sibling. Right. Because I'm controlling <coughs> something. Yeah, I know, like your, your question, um, 
is good. And the reason why I say it's good because it has a lot of things that, like, there's a lot of answers to certain parts of your, your, your question. I just want to know if, if, I'm, <clears throat> if I'm being so judged. Like, do, am I yeah. trying to, like, I don't want to, like, feel like I'm God trying to judge a person. For sure. But I, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, yeah. is it wrong for me to shut, no, push them away yeah. because they make me feel uneasy and yeah. I don't want to act out of character? Is it wrong to do that? Yeah, um, yes and no. Uh, which I, that's why I say I think it's it's the answer to that is a lot more longer than I probably could right now. But no, 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 that's, it's a good question. I want you to uh, I want because I know it's a real concern to you. So definitely we should talk about it. But what I would say is that um, and I'll try to make it brief. The every circumstance is going to have certain um, certain things to it that. Um, require you to think through about each situation like you, you want to be concerned about if you're a Christian you want to be concerned about the gospel you know the uh, being being a good representation of God with your attitude and with your heart but at the same time you have other priorities like protecting your wife protecting your family things of that nature so the, the answer actually gets a little bit complicated but that's why I say in some cases you would react this way in some cases you would react that way um, but the the perfect example of the gospel, like as we see it in scripture, is that God looked at a people who were enemies to him and they still sin and God saved them and he treats God, them right. He so himself to God and he feels like that makes it go away. Like just because yeah. you're a Christian and you go to it just erases everything you did. Like, right. It doesn't. Right. You know, like it really doesn't. And it's just like I feel like he hides behind his Christianity. Yeah. Like, I feel like he selfishly gave himself to God because he's afraid to go to hell. Like, he didn't do gotcha. it, like, I'm genuine. Well, well, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about All it. Right, All right. No, no, you're fine. That's a good question. Um, let me pray. Father, Phil, we have one? Okay. Yeah, let's pray for them. Absolutely. All right. Father, we... Uh, we want to first pray for uh, George and his wife, Lord, that we hear that they're sick and they can't attend the service today, Lord. And we just pray that you would um, care for them, Lord, and um, help them in this time, Lord, that you would heal them and restore them and comfort them, Lord. Um, I pray that they would uh, get enough rest and uh, whatever their illness is, Lord, that you would be there and that you would uh, give, them, give them grace in that situation. Father, uh, as we close this, this topic, Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for your instruction. We just ask that you would help us to apply it and to think with wisdom on how we ought to kill sin. Uh, let us not overestimate it or underestimate it, Lord, but let us seek the truth according to Scripture on how we ought to deal with these sins um, and uh, help us to maintain a life that is consistently seeking after you, repenting on a daily basis um, for the sake of enjoying the communion with you um, and the communion with others in Christ, Lord. And we thank you for the ultimate victory that is found in, in Christ Jesus, who conquered sin and death, um, the promises of eternal life in Christ, Lord. So we thank you for that, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys.